Merry Wives is a bit of a Cinderella text and it's been on the receiving end of quite a lot of critical sniffiness over the years. It's always sort of plucked out as a bit of an oddity and you'll find that in lots of collected works of Shakespeare. The editors kind of get to Merry Wives of Windsor and go, oh, oh, I'm not sure what to do with this. But I view it as Shakespeare's final unalloyedly joyful comedy. It's his final merry comedy after Merry Wives. His comedies take on a decidedly sort of melancholic or problematic turn from the unresolved romance of Twelfth Night to the definitely iffy sexual politics of a play like Measure for Measure or All's Well That Ends Well. And by contrast, Merry Wives of Windsor is a study of wit and geniality and reconciliation. Hello, I am Will Tosh, Research Fellow and Lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Dr Will Tosh about The Merry Wives of Windsor. This comedy, written in the late 1590s, features a character that audiences would have likely known from another of Shakespeare's plays, the fat rogue Sir John Falstaff. Falstaff is the comic master of Henry IV, but in this play, it's a pair of women who win the comic victory over Falstaff. The Merry Wives are mistresses Page and Ford, both married to prosperous middle-class men in the small town of Windsor, near London. Falstaff tries to seduce the women to gain access to their husband's gold. The wives band together to teach the presumptive Falstaff a lesson, that wives may be merry and yet honest too. The good humour of the plot is threatened by the angry jealousy of Mistress Ford's husband. But, ultimately, Falstaff is chastened, the spouses are reconciled, and the wives are triumphant. Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor is the sort of origin point for so much of our uh, modern comedy, our sitcoms, our screwball comedies. And not only that, it's kind of a, a sort of simultaneous high point and a new point of departure for Shakespeare. He reaches the sort of final heights of the farce that he'd started with really early in his career with a you know, place like Comedy of Errors. But Shakespeare is also starting with something new. He's starting with a, a new and kind of very artistically productive concern and interest in sexual jealousy and rage that will lead to Othello, to The Winter's Tale, to Cymbeline. And I think really if critics have been a bit undecided about it over two centuries, then audiences in fact have always known how to relish this comedy and it's been hugely popular on the stage. As Master Page says in the final scene, what cannot be eschewed must be embraced. And I think the citizens of Windsor model a form of tolerant good humour that we can all learn from. In the opening scene, we meet the people of Windsor, Justice Shallow, an officer of the law, Shallow's wealthy, foolish nephew, Slender, the amiable Welsh parson, Sir Hugh Evans, the prosperous citizen, George Page, and his wife, Mistress Page. Other characters include a young gentleman named Fenton, the host of the Garter Inn, and a Frenchman, Dr Caius. I think one of the most surprising, perhaps to our eyes, and, and, and kind of refreshing aspects of Merry Wives is that sense of cultural diversity. That, it, that in Windsor, which is a small town, it's provincial, 
it's a town that absorbs within it with really no concern and no ill effects. A Welsh parson, a French doctor, these individuals from elsewhere, who are fully integrated into the life of the town. But the harmonious life of this small town is being disrupted by Sir John Falstaff, who's already committed offences against Slender and Shallow. Sir Hugh tries to pacify the two outraged men. It is better that friends is the sword and end it. Sir Hugh also proposes a plan for Slender, that he marry Master Page's daughter Anne, who is the heiress to a large sum of money. At Page's house, Shallow and Slender confront Falstaff and his crew. Page attempts to soothe the tensions by inviting them all in to dinner. Then his wife arrives with her friend Mistress Ford, who catches Falstaff's eye. We're introduced to Falstaff, who we learn has run out of money, and his way to make money is to try and seduce both mistresses Ford and Page, because both of these women have the reputation of being in charge of their household finances. And that's something maybe we'll, we'll talk about, that power that comes with financial control. At the Garter Inn, the cash-strapped Falstaff tells his followers Pistol and Nim how he plans to seduce mistresses Ford and Page for their husband's money. He writes identical love letters to both women and tells Pistol and Nim to deliver them. But they refuse to get involved in these dishonourable affairs and Falstaff furiously dismisses them from his service. Pistol and Nim decide to take revenge on Falstaff by revealing his plan to the women's husbands. The next scene sets the second revenge plot in motion. Mistress quickly receives a letter from Sir Hugh asking her to encourage Anne Page to marry Slender. But Mistress quickly works for the French physician Dr Caius and he also wants to marry Anne. Caius is so angry at Sir Hugh for threatening his marriage with Anne that he challenges him to a duel. By God, it is a challenge. I will cut his throat in the park. By God, I will kill the Jacques Priest. It's a structured and careful play of nesting plots and subplots and alliances and enmities and friendships and jealousies and revenges that all kind of works together on cogs and sort of turns together very satisfactorily in terms of the various ways that the, the story is set up. The next scene sets off a third revenge plot. Mistress Page receives her love letter from Falstaff. Ask me no reason why I love you, the letter opens. You are not young, no more am I. There's sympathy, you are merry, so am I. Ha ha, then there's more sympathy. You love sack, and so do I. Would you desire better sympathy? Let it suffice thee, Mistress Page, at the least, if the love of a soldier can suffice, that I love thee. Mistress Page is outraged that he would dare to presume that she would ever be so dishonest as to have an affair, especially with a fat, drunken old man like Falstaff. How shall I be revenged on him? For revenged I will be, as sure as his guts are made of puddings. Mistress Ford arrives with the same letter and the same desire for revenge. How shall I be revenged on him? I think the best way were to entertain him with hope till the wicked fire of lust have melted him in his own grease. 
they decide to pretend to arrange an affair with Falstaff and use their meetings to punish him for his insult to their honour. Mistress Ford is delighted with the plan. She also wonders what reaction Falstaff's letter would provoke in her hotly jealous husband. So sexual rage and sexual jealousy are the really necessary acid in this play. Like any kind of sunny, light-hearted comedy needs to have something that is not that to stop it cloying. And the, the darkness in this play, when it is allowed to be seen, is located, I think, in Master Ford. Pistol and Nim tell Ford and Page that Falstaff plans to woo their wives. Page isn't bothered at all by the news, but the jealous Ford becomes extremely anxious about his wife's fidelity. Meanwhile, Dr Caius and Sir Hugh ask the host to supervise their duel. Partly as a joke, and partly to prevent bloodshed, the host tells the two combatants to meet in two different places. When the two finally find each other, the host cries, Peace, I say, French and Welsh, soul curer and body curer, your hearts are mighty, your skins are whole. Caius and Sir Hugh agree to be friends, though they are chiefly united in their annoyance at the host for tricking them. Mistress Ford invites Falstaff to visit her while her husband is away, just before Ford goes to visit Falstaff himself. He is determined to find out what his wife is up to. So he disguises himself as a man named Brooke and tells Falstaff that he is in love with Mistress Ford. So far, he says, she has seemed so virtuous that he has been unable to approach her. If, however, another man were able to seduce her, then Brooke might have an easier time seducing her in turn. Master Ford presents to Falstaff as a sort of tactic that if Falstaff goes and woos Mistress Ford, then that loss of reputation will give Master Brooke kind of power of blackmail over Mistress Ford and then she'll sleep with him. And all of this, of course, is made up because it's Master Ford, not Master Brooke, under the disguise. But again, there's that sort of glimmer of a kind of much more horrible play and a much more horrible sexual politics. Ford as Brooke offers Falstaff money to seduce Mistress Ford. Falstaff tells him that Mistress Ford has already invited him to visit her. Thou, Master Brooke, shalt know Ford for knave and cuckold. Ford is stunned at his wife's apparent betrayal. See the hell of having a false woman. God be praised for my jealousy. He plans to return home and catch his wife in the act. Meanwhile, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page are laying plans of their own. They tell the servants to take the basket of laundry, a buck basket, and dump it into the river on their queue. Full of glee, Falstaff arrives for his appointment with Mistress Ford, but then Mistress Page bursts in with the news that Ford is coming to search the house for her lover. "'What should I do?' cries Mistress Ford in mock terror. "'Look,' says Mistress Page, "'here is a basket.'" In the first gulling scene, Falstaff is invited into the buck basket, where he is then kind of buried under a whole load of dirty linen. The grubby, behind-scenes reality of a bourgeois home, the scrubbing, the cleaning, the, the, all the stuff that's kind of kept 
out in the hands of servants, is brought on and just kind of thrown uh, at, at Falstaff as a form of, of humiliation and punishment. And it's always hugely funny in performance, partly because the actors playing the servants, carrying out the buck basket, can do all sorts of business about how heavy it is and how hard it is. Falstaff hides in the basket just before Ford arrives with Paige, Caius and Sir Hugh. The servants carry the basket away while Ford searches the house. He finds nothing, and his friends chide him for his suspicion. Fie, fie, Master Ford, are you not ashamed? says Paige. The women laugh together. I know not which pleases me better, that my husband is deceived or Sir John, says Mistress Ford. They plan to send for Falstaff again to carry out a second trick. Meanwhile, there's a real lovers' meeting between Anne Page and Fenton, the young man she loves. Running alongside all of those threads is the story of the individual who is allegedly at the centre of the love plot, who is Anne Page herself, who we learn actually has a love affair and a courtship with Fenton, who is also remarkably kind of defanged. There are lots of terrible gallants in English drama who are kind of awful seducers. And Fenton is not one of those. He's a perfectly nice, respectable man who just happens not to have the permission from Anne Page's parents. Page thinks that Fenton is only after Anne's money. He pressures Anne to marry the wealthy but idiotic Slender, while her mother wants her to marry the well-moneyed Dr Caius. We then meet a hilariously irate Falstaff who was dumped from the stinking laundry basket into the river. Have I lived to be carried in a basket like a barrow of butcher's offal and to be thrown in the Thames? You may know by my size that I have a kind of alacrity in sinking. Mistress Ford sends him an apologetic message, inviting him to see her again. Then Ford arrives as Brooke. Falstaff tells him how he escaped under Ford's nose in the basket and that he will return to Mistress Ford that very morning. Ford vows that this time he will catch him. The next scene provides an odd comic interlude as Sir Hugh tests young William Page on his Latin. The none-too-literate Mistress quickly mistakes his Latin words, like horum, for much ruder words in English. You have this extraordinary scene that really comes out of nowhere. A whole scene of translation from Latin into English, which is misinterpreted by Mistress Quickly and interpreted in erotic ways, which are only partially not meant because they actually are kind of meant. Kind of Shakespeare's taken as one of the prime themes of English provincial life, the business of multiple languages and interpretation and translation and mistranslation Falstaff returns to Mistress Ford's house, but once again Mistress Page arrives with the news that Ford is coming to search for him. Which way should he go? Shall I put him into the basket again? asks Mistress Ford. No, I'll come no more with the basket, cries the panicked Falstaff. The women tell him his only option is to escape in disguise. Mistress Ford points out that there's a very large dress that Falstaff can use. So where all sort of all the kind of these filthy clothes have been sort of flung onto Falstaff in the first gulling scene, here we get the kind of flinging on of a different set of textiles, which is the costume of an old woman. The wives dress Falstaff as the fat woman of Brentford. In the past, Ford has threatened to beat this old woman because he believes she is a witch. But the wives aren't too bothered by this possibility. 
Hang him, dishonest varlet, they declare. We cannot misuse him enough. We'll leave a proof by that which we do. Wives may be merry and yet honest too. Ford arrives and tears into the laundry basket, but this time it is empty. He takes out his anger and frustration on the fat old woman who is leaving the house and beats her. There's a sort of cruelty both to Falstaff and the unseen figure of the old woman of Brentford. Whatever that form of violence is, it's quite extreme. And it doesn't get wreaked on the old woman of Brentford, it's Falstaff. But Ford thinks she is the old woman of Brentford, which is again one of those moments of of cruelty and darkness. The flip side of the comic reimposition of order that the whole play enacts is the violence against those who are marginalised or kind of don't fit into that order, such as this the, the unrealised but conjured up old woman of Brentford. Mistress Ford and Mistress Page laugh again at the success of their trick and tell their husbands about the whole scheme. Ford apologises sincerely to his wife for doubting her. Pardon me, wife. Henceforth, do what thou wilt. The wives propose a final public trick against Falstaff. They will meet him at midnight in Windsor Forest and tell him to disguise himself as the legendary ghost of the forest, Hearn the Hunter, with great ragged horns on his head. Then the people of Windsor, disguised as fairies, will rush out to frighten and pinch him. As Mistress Page says, Against such lewdsters and their lechery, those that betray them do no treachery. Secretly, Master and Mistress Page plan a bit more knavery. Page plans for Slender to steal Anne away while she is dressed as a fairy and marry her, and Mistress Page plans the same for Dr Caius. But Fenton and Anne plan to trick both her parents that night and elope together. Falstaff laments once again at his misfortunes, but when Mistress Quickly brings yet another invitation from Mistress Ford, he cannot resist it. He goes to Windsor Forest, as she commands, with a set of deer's horns on his head. When both Mistress Ford and Mistress Page turn up, he says gaily, Divide me like a bribed buck, each a haunch, my horns I bequeath your husbands. A cuckold is a man whose wife has been unfaithful, and the symbol of a cuckold was horns, horns growing on the head. And if there is one symbol or word or frame of thought in early modern drama and comedy that typifies the central concerns of that form, it is the cuckold. It is male sexual jealousy and fear of being supplanted with horns invariably functioning as a sign of sexual humiliation. We find obviously the the horns on Falstaff at the end of Merry Wives, they're to humiliate him. Even though he himself has not been cuckolded, he's been potentially the cuckolder. It's the the, the horns on a head is a sort of symbol of ultimate shame and humiliation for a man. But they are, of course, interrupted again, this time by a group of fairies. Mistress Quickly, dressed as the fairy queen, orders the fairies to pinch and burn Falstaff with candles as they sing. Fie on sinful fantasy, fie on lust and luxury, pinch him fairies mutually, pinch him for his villainy. 
In the confusion, Dr. Caius, Slender and Fenton each steal a fairy away. The fairies disappear and the Fords and Pages arrive to triumph over Falstaff. Now, sir, who's a cuckold now? says Ford, indicating Falstaff's horns. Falstaff laments, I do begin to perceive that I am made an ass. But the joke isn't just on Falstaff. Yet be cheerful, knight, says Page. Thou shalt eat a posset tonight at my house where I will desire thee to laugh at my wife that now laughs at thee. He thinks he's tricked his wife and married Anne to Slender, just as she thinks she's tricked him and married Anne to Caius. But just as Falstaff tried to fool the husbands and ended up being fooled in turn, the pages too have both been fooled. Slender and Caius now burst in, exclaiming that the fairies that they tried to elope with were actually boys. Anne herself now arrives with her new husband Fenton. Her parents are angry that she disobeyed them, but Fenton defends their marriage and chastises the pages. You would have married her most shamefully where there was no proportion held in love. In terms of the Anne Page story, she is a a figure who is allowed very little permitted movement and freedom of choice. She's told by her parents who she's going to marry. Both of the choices from mother and father are uncongenial. And there's a sort of sense of completion at the end of the play, a kind of schooling of the various characters who learn to recognise that love, this new thing, love, a love match, needs to be borne in mind. And choice and selection needs to go that way. With a little coaxing from their friends, the pages drop their objections to the marriage. Fenton, heaven give thee joy. What cannot be eschewed must be embraced, says Page. The play has featured a number of revenge plots, but it also features reversals from enmity to acceptance, and it is on this tolerant note that the play ends. As Mistress Page suggests, Let us every one go home and laugh this sport o'er by a country fire, Sir John and all. There's that statement, what cannot be eschewed must be embraced, which I really like as a sort of principle, I don't think actually is the is the ethical message of Mary Wives of Windsor, but I think it lands with slightly more ethical value today and perhaps has done for some years than it might have done in, in Shakespeare's time. In our next episode, we'll consider how Shakespeare develops the community of Windsor and its values and whether he may have found inspiration in the communities he knew himself. <laughs> ¶¶